Pastor Giovanni is going to read the central text today, which is Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30 in Spanish. And because I can't do that, I will read it, follow up, and read it in English. Okay? Thank you. Good morning. God bless everybody. Espero en el Señor Jesús enviarles pronto a Timoteo para que también cobre ánimo de recibirles las noticias de ustedes. No tengo a nadie más quien enviar como quien se preocupe para beneficio de ustedes y la obra del Señor. Pero ustedes conocen también el carácter de Timoteo que ha sido conmigo en la obra del Evangelio del Señor junto a mí como un padre y un hijo. Así que espero enviarlos pronto como se aclaren mis asuntos y confío en el Señor, asimismo iré pronto. Ahora bien, creo que es necesario enviarle de vuelta a Eprafodito, mi hermano, colaborador y compañero de lucha, a quien ustedes han enviado para alentarme en mis necesidades. Y los extraña mucho a todos ustedes, y él ha estado muy afligido, en ver que ha estado muy enfermo. En efecto, estuvo enfermo y al borde de la muerte. Pero Dios se compadeció de él, y no solo de él mismo, sino también de mí, para no añadir tristeza a mi tristeza. Así que lo envío urgentemente para que al verlo de nuevo, Ustedes se alegren y yo esté menos preocupado. Reciban en el Señor a, con toda alegría y ámenlo como yo, porque estuvo a punto de morir por la obra de Cristo, arriesgando la vida para suplir el servicio que ustedes no podían prestarme. Gracias. And in English, my best language. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not that of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Ephrodites, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my needs. For he has been longing for you all, and he's been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thank you very much. So I think we had a little snafu there. Our, I'm going to read our central text. It's from Galatians 3. I'm not Galatians. See, I'm messing up here. From Philippians 3. I want to make sure we all get this. Uh, thank you all so much. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord, and to write the same things to you is no trouble to me as it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law, a Pharisee, and as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is God's word. Um, in April of 2015, in the LA Times, one of their columnists, her name's Megan Dom, uh, she wrote a really provocative uh, and really prophetic article titled, Has Millennials' Self-Esteem Become Self-Righteousness? Now, just real quick, every generation thinks the generations behind them are inherently selfish, okay? We all think the generations that are younger than us are worse. So eight years later, this could be written, has Gen Z's self-esteem become self-righteousness by a millennial? Nevertheless, I want you to really pay attention to what she said. She said, maybe the indignation and dripping sanctimony we see from so many young activists isn't narcissism or the, self, or the storied self-esteem that this generation has been mainlining since birth. Maybe it's undergone some sort of chemical conversion into something even more dangerous, self-righteousness. For college students caught in that muddy crossing between childhood and independence, going through a phase in which they can't tell the difference between caring for themselves and declaring their own importance at every turn may actually be something of a rite of passage albeit one as ridiculous as returning from a semester abroad with a foreign accent. <laughs> but if, in fact, this confusion is more than just a phase, if what we're dealing with is a generation and increasingly an entire culture for whom self-righteousness and self-esteem are essentially interchangeable, we're in trouble. Because self-righteousness, when you actually think about it, is a contradiction of self-esteem. It selts in when genuine unrighteousness eludes us. If you didn't really catch what she was saying, she's saying there's, there's this movement, and we've been doing this for so long, where there's just this, such inordinate focus on the self, and in that self-esteem and self-confidence, and yet she's making this connection. When that's all we do, self-righteousness is a dangerous destination where that will lead. And 2,000 years ago, that's the exact same point Paul makes right here. Literally, the same exact point. You just heard me read it. What word did you hear repeated over and over again? Confidence, 
confidence, confidence in the flesh, righteousness, righteousness, righteousness of what? My own. And Paul is talking about that, and all of a sudden he issues these warnings, watch out, watch out, watch out, three times. He even likens self-righteousness in the same category as evil doing. Now, we all know, if you're a Christian or not a Christian, we all know that certainly religious people are very guilty of being self-righteous, and that is warranted because even when we read the Gospels, Jesus' harshest words were not for prostitutes. They weren't for demon-possessed, those running Ponzi schemes. It was for the upright, moral, religious leader, the dutiful person. But her article points out the reality. Self-righteousness knows no bounds, and it has been said that self-righteousness kills more people each year than smoking. And when you look at the headlines, that's what we see. Traffic incidents that go terribly wrong, broken families, wars, rumors of wars, a divided country, all these things, self-righteousness lurks as the primary instigator. What do we do? I really want us to be challenged this morning We've got just less than 30 minutes here to be sober about what's in front of this passage. I think it is absolutely vital that we understand this is an aspect to really understand the gospel. And this is not hyperbole when we say, point number one, the evil nature of self-righteousness. Two, what is the antidote? The antidote to self-righteousness. Because we're all so guilty of it, except for me. But, um, (laughs) okay, making sure you're listening. And then lastly, what would it look like for a community to be shaped by the righteousness from God? So the evil nature of self-righteousness, the antidote to self-righteousness, and a community shaped by the righteousness from God. So let's just dive in. And one of the things we've been saying throughout the series, especially early on, is the audience that the Apostle Paul's writing to were very marginalized people, very vulnerable people. And what were these people? Well, they were the the poor. (laughs) Women. Slaves. These are people in their culture that had no voice. And in line of what we said last week, these are people who had no credentials. Paul's audience had nothing, I mean nothing, to put on a resume. And there's something about human psychology. I don't know if you can relate to this. But when we find ourselves in the position uh, of somebody who's in really, you know, got a lot of credentials, a lot of credibility almost immediately we, our voice feels less important, doesn't it? I mean, what happens when you and I are in the presence of somebody with a stunning resume? There's a sense of feeling frumpy, uh, insecure, a little bit inferior. And we, we, we tend to give people with stunning resumes greater credibility and believability. And Paul knows that about us. And his audience, they have nothing. And he's warning them against people who could come into the church who have amazing credentials, people who are highly educated, people who are very articulate, very skilled, these religious leaders. He's talking about a group called the circumcision group. Now, who in the world is the circumcision group, and why is, why is he so concerned? It's a group of people that appear elsewhere in the New Testament. Book of Galatians. It's written because of this group. And they're a group of religious leaders, highly skilled, very articulate, very powerful, uh, 
And they said, you know what? We like Jesus. We're into that. We think that's important. But you know what? If you, if you really want to be righteous in life, do you know what you really need to do? I, I love what Jesus did, but let me tell you something. You've got to get circumcised. In order to be righteous, you've got to be circumcised. And in the book of Galatians, we come to Paul dealing directly with him. And we come to verse 12 of chapter 5, and listen to what he says. I wish those who are preaching this would emasculate themselves. I'm so glad that verse is not up in two weeks with all the kids in the room. What does that mean, mom and dad? <laughs> That's Steve, not me. <laughs> right. And Paul says this. If I preach circumcision, do you understand? The offense of the cross gets removed. And he said, well, why? Look, I want to just say something. I hope you're dial in. Whether you're a Christian or not, we all have a tendency to say, you know, Christianity's offensive, right? And when we say that, in large part, what we're really referencing, we're saying, well, you know, I know why Christianity is offensive. Because it says some of the things we do is wrong. Sin. And in order to become a Christian, you have to, you have to come to this, this, these terms that I'm a sinner. But Paul, when he's talking about the real offense of the gospel, he's saying, yeah, that's one aspect. But you want to know what's really radically offensive? It's not what you've done but what you are absolutely incapable of doing. And to make yourself righteous, righteous before God. You have to ask yourself, the apostle Paul's getting all wound up here in Philippians as he did in Galatians. Paul's calling these religious leaders, he's calling them dogs, that was a derogatory term. And he's calling them evil doers. These are very religious people. These aren't people running Ponzi schemes. Paul's not saying, watch out. If they get into your church, they will steal all your money. They might kill you. These aren't terrorists. Do you know what they look like? Us. Identical. These are people whose lives look morally upright. They're very educated. They're very, you know, self-sufficient, very capable. All these different things. These are the kind of people, I'll be honest, when you when look at the circumcision group, these are the kind of people you wish for to be your neighbors. You know why? Because they're not going to leave yard trash out. They're going to pay their HOAD dues on time. They might contact the HOA about you a lot, but you know what? You could, they, you could ask them. <laughs> they probably would. You, you, you could ask them, can I borrow a tool that'll help you? you? Can you feed my cat? I'm going out of town. You could leave your doors unlocked, living next door to people like this. And Paul is saying to them, evildoers. Has he lost his mind? Well, there's this little thing that Jesus does, and it's very subtle, okay? I just love the way he just works it in. Jesus does the same thing. In Matthew 7, Jesus Christ is preaching in front of the crowds, but you know who else is right there with him in front of him? His disciples, who have left everything to follow him, and he's speaking to them, and he says, if you then, who are evil, wait, what? If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, wait, evil people don't know how to do that, what in the world does this mean? Part of the reason you and I are a little bit like, what in the world is this? What's the point here right now? Part of it is we don't understand evil. It's truest definition. 
When we think of evil, we think of the worst things, the things that we're seeing in the world, the things that happen, we just, the worst imaginable form. But you know what evil's definition is in the Bible? Same as it is in the Old Testament, the Hebrew, it's self-conceit. Evil's starting point is always self-advantaging, self-sufficiency, seeking to be self-referential all the time. And I just want to stop and I want you to really, I really want to point something out. The Bible tells us that the origins of evil, the saga of evil, where did it start? Where did we start seeing evil? How did it happen? We're told it started with an angel. And when we get any descriptions of this angel, he wasn't toothless. Lucifer wasn't inarticulate. He didn't have a gimpy wing. What are, we, what are we told? He was beautiful. He, was, he knew the law. He was very articulate. Apparently a third of heaven was very wowed by the things he said and could leave everything. What had happened? Where did, where did the saga evil start? It started with righteousness of my own, apart from God. Where we told about our tragic fall in the Garden of Eden we were not told that Adam and Eve were murdering people. <laughs> they only hit each other, but, you know, they weren't doing all these different things. So what, what happened? They sought to be what? Righteous in their own eyes. And when they realized what they had done, do you know what's the first thing that happens? We, you read about it in the Garden of Eden. What happens? All of a sudden, Adam and Eve realize they are what? Naked. As soon as they sin, all of a sudden, they realize they're naked. Because you know why? Because there is a soul piercing need for us as human beings to be covered in righteousness. But it is the righteousness of God. And we spend so much of our lives, whether you are a Christian or not, this is something you and I were designed for. I want you to hear that. If you hear nothing else, you have a design to be clothed in righteousness, to clothe this Soul nakedness we all feel. And every bit of righteousness we try to find on our own will leave us wanting. Paul's not just saying, watch out for those dogs, those people. But he's saying it about us. Both the religious and the non-religious person needs to be righteous. The religious person tries to be righteous by being righteous for God and they're you know, family of faith, the right, but the, the non-religious person, what are they trying to do? They're always trying to be righteous for themselves so they can accept themselves and righteous before the world. You heard it in the article. There is a massive need for righteousness. And I want, to be, I want to be really clear about something. Paul is not saying that living a good life or having amazing credentials is evil. But what he is saying and make no mistake about it, he is saying, if we make that the basis of our righteousness, then that is evil doing. Consider for just a moment what happens when you and I, if, what would happen to us if we try to build our life on our own righteousness? One of the things that just begins to show up in our lives is we start grabbing on to the decisions we've made in life, the choices we've made, the things we've accomplished, and it's like a boa constrictor. We start wrapping ourselves around this thing over and over. And if you and I really give ourselves over to our own righteousness, what would happen to us? You know what happens? We become obsessively defensive. 
Because we're grabbing on to the thing that has to clothe us. And the thing that is our righteousness. And all of a sudden, if somebody comes after that and attacks your record or things that you've done or diminishes your accomplishments, what happens? That's our righteousness at stake, and we can't handle that. We become incredibly critical and judgmental of others. We look at our lives and say, good grief, look what I was able to do in life. Look at all the choices I've made. Why can't that person get their stuff together? I can't relate to that. And all of a sudden, we start losing empathy, and one of the things that absolutely happens is we have to be right. We just have to be right. Self-righteousness ends marriages. It, it destroys friendships. It destroys careers. It, it starts wars. It divides a country. And it destroys others, but it also does this. It destroys yourself. Because if you and I base our life on our own confidence in our own flesh, then there will be a voice in your life over and over and over again, constantly saying, wait, 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 what did you just do there, dummy? Why did you make that decision? What is with that? What are we to do with this? Are we, do we take the Bible as seriously that there is this deep need for righteousness? Let's look at the second point. Uh, I was really struck by a woman named Rachel Goldberg. Um, you've probably seen her in the news. Her son, Hirsch, was at the music festival in Israel um, eight days ago. And she wrote an article in the New York Times on Thursday. And I'm not sure what's happened since then, but it's bleak. I think what happened is he, I think he lost an arm and then uh, was taken captive. So she wrote, she said, time is slowly ticking into the future with these hostages approaching a week in captivity. And if he's still alive, how much longer can he survive? His wounds are grievous. And I hope someone somewhere is being kind to him and caring for him and attending to him. Because Hirsch is my whole world and this evil is the flood that's destroying it. And I really don't know if any can save it. If anyone knows, please tell me. Because to save a life, our sages taught, is to save a world. Please help me save my son. It will save my world. Every single person in Gaza has a mother or had a mother at some point. And I would say this, then as mothers to our mothers, to other mothers, if you see Hirsch, will you please help him out? I think about it a lot. I really think I would help your son if he was in front of me, near me. I'm sorry, that was them right there. Um, Jonathan Haidt, he's not a Christian, but he wrote a great book a couple years ago called The Righteous Mind, and this is what he says. He says, empathy is the antidote to righteousness, although it's very difficult to empathize across a moral divide. What was she asking for? That brave mother was asking for empathy. Is Paul lacking empathy here when he's being so hard on these self-righteous moral leaders? No, and I'll tell you why. And here's how he goes about it. Has anyone seen the movie Goodwill Hunting? Do you remember the scene, you know, Matthew Damon, he's, you know, I think he's Goodwill Hunting. It's Will Hunting. He's chasing after the same girl this other guy is, and they're both after her, and he gets her phone number, doesn't he? He gets the girl. And do you remember the scene? He, he spots the guy that is the other competitor through the glass window of a cafe, and he takes the phone numbers, and he goes, bam, on the window. I got a number. <laughs> How do you like them what? Remember the line? How do you like them apples? That's right. Paul's saying, 
You want to talk about righteousness in the flesh and confidence of your own. Here's my digits. Do you want to know? <laughs> Let's talk about it. I, I am ethnically righteous. I am tribally righteous. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I, King David came from these guys. I'm nationally righteous. I am morally righteous. I have career righteousness. I was part of this elite group of Pharisees. A lot of us don't even realize how educated Paul was. Paul went to the Harvard of his day, trained by the world-renowned Rabbi Gamil. And Paul is saying, do you know what happened because I built my life on that? I became I became as self-righteous as maybe some of the students are this past week at Harvard. Paul's saying, do you know what it led to my life? I became a murderer. And Paul is saying, it's not possible to have empathy until we come to the point in life when we are leveled and our righteousness is leveled to the ground, to level zero. Paul is saying, there was this point in my life where all these things were everything to me. And then I encountered him. And when I encountered this Jesus who blinded me, I, I looked at him and I, I saw the beauty. I mean, I, I, then I couldn't see, but the righteousness of Christ. And I realized this righteousness was something he was going to give to me. The thing I've been looking for and trying to build my whole life, all on my own, he was doing it and doing it for me. And you know what? When I, when I encountered the righteousness of Christ and I saw that beauty and I saw that compassion and I heard that voice and I knew what he was doing, do you know what I did? I looked back at my own righteousness and do you know what I saw? I looked at my life and I counted everything as rubbish. But that is such a tame English translation. Do you know what word he literally uses? It only appears here once in the Bible. Do you know what word he uses? Do anybody else remember another movie? Slumdog Millionaire? Do you remember the opening scene in Slumdog Millionaire? Maybe not. The little kid falls. He's locked in the latrine. And the only way to get out, do you know how to get out? I'll just go ahead and show it. Paul says, that's your righteousness. And we spend our lives trying to cover ourselves in our own righteousness. And Paul says, I looked at it and, yeah, crap. You know, the person who is destitute in their life and they can look and say, you know, my life's gone to crap. But the person's on top of everything can never say that. And Paul was at the top. And he was at his worst, really, and didn't know it. And he saw the righteousness of crap. And his righteousness was crap compared to that. You know, there was an 80s ad, remember this one on drugs, an egg? This is your brain. This is your brain on drugs? Any question? This is your righteousness. This is your righteousness apart from God. Any questions? I can see the comments later at the, at the end. People say, that was one crappy sermon, preacher. <laughs> let's, let's drop that. 
bears repeating. Paul is not saying somehow credentials don't matter or being a good steward of your lives, working hard, or how we live doesn't matter, but when it's the basis of your righteousness, that is the truth of what it looks like. How is this good news? How is the gospel good news? Because I don't know if you're listening, there's a part of me that just has these moments and say, how is this good news? You tell me I'm a sinner, and the best I can accomplish before your eyes is that? Crap? (laughs) How would that not destroy self-esteem if we believe that? As many people look at this and say, that's some dangerous doctrine right there. Wow. And the truth is, I'll be honest with you, if your righteousness, if your life is built on your own confidence, your own self-esteem, this is terrible news for you. It will destroy your self-esteem. It's wounding. But if you let it level you, it'll be the most liberating news of your life. Because why? There is, I don't care who you are, there is a desire in every human heart, everybody in this room, there is a part of us that always has longed to just be loved by somebody, not for what we have done. You long for that. I'm no psychologist, but I would bet my life savings, which isn't much, on that. And has anybody ever found it? Because deep down, there's always that fear, right? What if I lose my income? What will happen to me? What what if I lose my job? What if my career is damaged? What if my reputation goes sideways? What if I say the wrong thing? To my friends. What if I lose? I mean, what, what if I'm not on that? If I don't put the foot on the gas and I'm just not as righteous and good at it anymore, like, will they be there? Who's going to stick, right? My wife had had a real moment of weakness. We were really tired and we were driving to the beach. We had worked really hard and we're getting ready to have a getaway. So, in a real moment of weakness, we bought a People magazine because we didn't want to use our brains on the beach. And my wife, some of you heard this illustration before, but she's reading about Clint Eastwood's son named Scott Eastwood, and he's on the cover, and Scott Eastwood's looking for love. Scott Eastwood's looking for love. And so my wife's reading this out, and I'm cringing, you know, as she's reading about all the things Scott Eastwood is looking for in a woman. She's got to be smart, tough, gritty. I want her have a good career. She's got to be funny. She's got to have character. But oh, by the way, (laughs) she's got to be good in bed. Because if she's not, you know, sexual chemistry is everything. If that doesn't work, then a relationship can't work. And I just, I just had this moment. I just, I was like, wow, that just really makes me so sad. So you mean to tell me there's a girl that could come into your life. And I mean, she could be incredible character. She could be a gift to the world, potentially a wonderful mother, skilled, you know, educated, have many friends, a friend to the downtrodden, selfless. And you mean to say you're withholding your love? She's on probation based on her performance in bed? 
Is that good news? Heavens, no, it's not. And yet, that's the way love relationships and relationships in our life, the vast majority of them, we are on probation, whether we want to admit that or not. Only marriage is the closest relationship this side of heaven that is like the love of God because it says, I'm not leaving. I'm locking myself in with you even when you're at your worst. I'm still here and I'm going to love you. And there is something in us as human beings, when we look at some couple that has been married for 75 years and we look at them holding hands in the you know, facility and they're still there and they're together and they love each other and they're blowing out a cupcake on their 70th anniversary, we gosh and we fall apart and we say, that's love. And you've been looking for that. You want that. And Paul is saying, I was doing this. I was on the probation track with God, my peers, and myself. And I was going somewhere in my righteous indignation. I was going to kill somebody I disagreed with. I was so caught up in this. And then I encountered him, and I was at my worst, and I encountered a surpassing love that I was looking for in my righteousness my whole life. The most damning thing that Jesus Christ could ever say to any one of us on Judgment Day is not, depart from me, I've looked at the record, and you know, you just blew it. I saw what you did. I saw that. You could have done this. You could have done that. The most damning thing Jesus Christ could ever say to any soul is, depart from me. I never knew you. And the people people, Jesus talks about here, they're surprised because they're saying, but wait wait a second, didn't I prophesy in the streets? (laughs) I never knew you. What would it look like for us to take seriously what Paul is saying here as a community? To be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Well, just, can you just, you and I imagine for a moment how different our lives would look like if we believed everything Paul is saying in these nine verses? Let me try and, Just paint a picture. If you and I believe this today, you and I would be the most grounded, secure, and joyous person you know. If we took seriously what Paul was saying, we could work really diligently in our careers, accomplish great things, and yet hold them out loosely like this. We could enter retirement, the first day of retirement, without having an identity crisis. If we, could, if we lost our jobs, we'd lose our jobs, but not ourselves. We could parent differently, not feeling that somehow our worth and our value were tied to our children's behavior and accomplishments. We could weather economic downturns that affect our net worth without affecting our ultimate worth. We could receive praiseworthy compliments without false humility that shuns them away or a lack of humility that lets them get to our head. We'd be less threatened by others who are just better at things than us. We would handle criticism without being devastated and probably respond by saying, oh, that's not even half of it. Let me tell you about this other time when I really blew it. We'd be pouring ourselves into others without constantly checking our emotional health barometer. We'd be able to do something most of the world can't seem to do at all right now, admit when we're wrong. We'd be able to listen with curiosity to people with radically different views 
while maintaining our convictions. We could be honest with people and lovingly speak the truth to them without feeling responsible for their reaction or their response. If we really believe this, church, <laughs> we would do something most Christians don't think to do. Repent of their self-righteousness as they repent of their sins. When I grow up, I want to be that person. But I can't get there alone, and neither can you. An exhaustive diagnostic list of questions that reveals where we are self-righteous, it can be helpful, but remember, Paul was writing to a community of people. This was a letter written to people. When Epaphroditus walked in, they, they heard him read it. And they processed it together. What would it look like for us to be a community that takes our self-righteousness as seriously as our sin? It might look like us tenderly being able to go to those who are sharing our lives with and say, I hear that you're really hurt by what happened to you. I hear you and I see you, but I wonder, are you open to forgiving them? Are you holding on to your anger so you feel more righteous than this person? Hey, I hear what you're saying, but the, I see that you're pulling away from many people and focusing so much on your work. Is there something underneath that? Hey, I hear that what you're saying about this person is gossip. I know you're frustrated, but I have to ask, does it just make you feel more righteous than they? Do we have the ability in real time with to gently, with kindness and compassion, preach the gospel to one another, with one another. You're busy, exhausted, and pulled in a million directions. Can I just remind you that Christ is your righteousness? You have nothing to prove. Jesus Christ truly paid it all, and he lived it all. And just as the hymn goes, not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Nothing in our hands we bring Simply to the cross we cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Lord, we, um, we see this show up every aspect. There's so much self-righteousness in my own heart. <laughs> Lord, help us to believe this news that is good. That there is nothing we bring. Nothing everything we have been looking for and trying to be so righteous with you and others has already been found in the cross. I pray that you would be the antidote to our self-righteousness. Lord, I do pray that you would break us and level us to zero so we could hold on to your good gifts and praise you for them and praise you for all of our righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.